Thank you all for coming. Um, thank you to uh, CNES for inviting me out and to Amr for that uh, lovely introduction and for all of you for coming out during a very busy time of the quarter. Um, so today I'd like to share with you some of the major findings and arguments that I make in my book, Brothers Apart. So historian uh, Ilan Prape has referred to this community as, quote, the forgotten Palestinians, unquote. In part, this is because when we talk about Palestinians, we tend to think of those Palestinians in the West Bank, in the Gaza Strip, in East Jerusalem, or in exile. Rarely do we talk about those who are within the 1948 boundaries of modern-day Israel, and to the extent that they are talked about, they're usually talked about in the context of Israel or as um, an, a minority within Israel, uh, cut off from the rest of their people. And the academic literature on Palestinian citizens of Israel, including in the fields of history, anthropology, sociology, political science, likewise typically situates this community within Israel studies. Less often do we see them discussed in the context of other Palestinians. So this afternoon I'd like to make the case that situating Palestinian citizens of Israel, and especially the intellectuals of this community, within a Palestinian and more broadly an Arab analytical framework contributes to the field of modern Arab studies. So my argument's divided into three parts. First, I'll show how in the years following 1948, Palestinian intellectuals and activists inside Israel drew on the intellectual and political connections they had established with the Arab world prior to the Nakba, prior to 1948. And those connections helped them push back against the isolation they faced as, a minor as minority citizens in the new state. Next, I'll show more specifically how texts, including newspapers, journals, poetry, collections, and novels, played a key role in connecting Palestinian intellectuals in Israel to the Arab world, as well as to the broader decolonizing world, despite the profound geographic and physical isolation that they faced. Um, and then I'll do that, and in doing that, I'll talk about how they broaden our conceptual understanding of decolonization and how they drew on multiple vocabularies of decolonization to make legible their own conditions. And then finally, I'll shed light on the crucial role that cross-border encounters between Palestinians, whether mediated through texts or through direct contacts, um, allowed also the, played a role in demystifying this community to the wider Arab world and helped inspire Palestinians who found themselves under occupation quite suddenly in the wake of the 1967 war. So by taking these three lines of argument together, I hope to show that an interdisciplinary approach to the studying of this community allows us to shift our analytical lens and integrate the Palestinian citizens of Israel more fully into the study of the Arab world. Doing so not only enriches our understanding of the Palestinian Arabs as a whole, but also ensures that we don't reproduce the isolation that they felt in these early years. So let's start with the pre-48 connections and how Palestinian intellectuals in Israel drew on the connections with the Arab world. So most of you probably have heard of or know this man, Emil Habibi, as a preeminent novelist whose most famous book, The, Life of, the Secret Life of Saeed, the Pass Optimist, has been translated into numerous languages and has won international accolades. Some of you may also be familiar with Habibi's political career as a leader in the Israeli Communist Party and longtime Knesset member. Less well-known are Habibi's early years uh, during British, in British Mandate Haifa and the influence they had on his own intellectual development and the subsequent development of several generations of Palestinian intellectuals. 
So in Haifa, he, when he was a student at the local primary school, his teachers encouraged the voracious reader to immerse himself in the classics of Arabic poetry and prose, to master the intricacies of Arabic grammar, and to study the Quran so as to appreciate its linguistic and cultural influences. His older brothers worked in Haifa's rapidly expanding railroad and oil industries, and they used to invite communist co-workers to meet secretly in their family home, thereby familiarizing Habibi with basic Marxist tenets from a young age. As a high school student in Akka's government high school, and later at St. Luke's Missionary High School in Haifa, Habibi participated in nationalist anti-colonial protests that were part of the 1936-39 Arab Revolt. Upon completing high school in 1939, he joined his brothers in an oil refinery and joined the Palestine Communist Party. And Habibi notes in interviews that he was particularly interested in the PCP's framing of the Arab Revolt as a nationalist anti-colonial struggle, and that the two were conjoined. And he was also particularly impressed with the party's call for cooperation between Arab and Jewish laborers. Um, the oil refineries and the, and the um, railroad industry were very heavily integrated where you have a lot of Arab and Jewish workers. Through the Arab periodicals that came to Palestine from Cairo, Beirut, and beyond, Habibi also familiarized himself with an array of intellectual currents, whether it was the modernizing pro-Western literary doyens, Taha Hussein and Abbas al-Aqqad, or Russian radical authors such as Tolstoy and Chekhov and Mayakovsky. As his interest in communist thought grew, Habibi was also drawn to Lebanese leftist critics like Maroun Abud and Naif Khouri, uh, and other contributors to the Beirut-based leftist monthly, at tariq In 1942, Habibi joined the Palestine Broadcasting Station in Jerusalem, where he nourished his deep interest in Arabic literature and culture, and he got to meet Arab, uh, authors and musicians from Iraq to Egypt, who came to appear on the, on the broadcast. So I bring all of these uh, lines of interest together to show, again, the transnational dimensions of Habibi's intellectual upbringing and nourishment, and, and how those things that in influenced him also influenced the launching of Al-Itihad, which was an Arabic leftist newspaper that was launched in 1944 by Habibi and some of his colleagues. They, he served as an editor and frequent contributor, and the paper emphasized workers' rights, criticized the bourgeois nationalist leadership of Palestine, uh, and also introduced readers to the basic tenets of Marxist thought. Um, and internationally, the paper defended the Soviet Union, condemned fascism and Nazism, and reported on independence movements throughout the world. The establishment of Al-Itihad, despite its tiny circulation at the time, helped Habibi and his colleagues hone their journalistic skills, which would, they would then reprise after 1948. So 1948, or the Nakba, the catastrophe that Palestinians faced as a result of the creation of Israel, led the vast majority of them to flee or be forced out of their homes. But the chaos also deeply affected those who ended up staying within the 1948 lines and eventually became Israeli citizens. Habibi, for example, spent a few months stranded in Beirut in the summer of 1948 before he was eventually able to cross back over the border. By the early 1950s, about 160,000 Palestinians remained in the state of Israel, but many of them had also experienced profound dislocation internally. Large numbers were internal refugees, which jeopardized their legal status in the new state. 
and many had relatives who were stranded across the border unable to return. This was especially true in the Galilee in the northern areas. And so the dark shaded areas of this map are the areas with high concentrations of Palestinians. And you can see they're very much in the Galilee in the northern area in what's called the Little Triangle, which is, are the areas that hug the northern West Bank, and then down south in the Naqab, in the desert. So what happened to these Palestinians who lived in or managed to return to Israel? As Shira Robinson brilliantly illustrates in her book, Citizen Strangers, uh, Israel was from its outset what she terms a liberal settler state. In other words, Palestinians living under Israeli rule in the 50s and 60s were subjected to elements both of liberal democratic governance and settler colonial rule. Perhaps the clearest manifestation of this was the military government, which placed restrictions on the movement of Palestinians. You can see a woman here showing the soldiers her pass permit, her travel permit, at a checkpoint. So it's very reminiscent of the military government that we now would see in the West Bank, for example. Those policies were pioneered and introduced um, on Palestinian citizens of Israel. So the checkpoints, the pass permits, all that, all that stuff. So they had that dimension of, of sort of blatant settler colonial rule, but they also gave Palestinian citizens who had citizenship, voting rights, the ability to run in Knesset, and so forth. So somewhat aware of this contradiction, the state had this uh, conundrum that it faced, whereby it wanted to perpetuate settler colonial rule, while presenting themselves to the rest of the world as this um, liberal democratic society that integrated its minority citizens. And so the, one of the ways that they did that was to employ various mechanisms and schemes to try to cultivate uh, what they called a loyal Arab minority, that's their phrase, but that they could pre present as evidence of Israel's benevolence. So building on Robinson's findings, this is essentially what Robinson argues. I argue that one, another manifestation of this idea of the liberal settler state can be seen at the cultural level. As state officials tried to induce Palestinian citizens of Israel to turn inward toward the Israeli state and turn away from the Arab world for cultural sustenance. And as Anton Shammas himself, a Palestinian citizen of Israel and novelist states, sort of sums it all up, he says, quote, the state of Israel put us in isolation. So it was a quite a deliberate effort to try to turn Palestinians away from the Arab world, which was a tall order given how integrated they were, as we just saw with Habibi. So to blunt the effects of this isolation, Palestinian intellectuals and party organizers and cultural producers adopted several distinct yet overlapping strategies of resistance. Many of them built on those strategies that had been developed in the late Ottoman and British Mandate years, <clears throat> such as holding demonstrations, establishing civil rights, civil organizations, and so forth. But given the restrictions of the military government, many of those strategies were blunted in their ability to uh, be efficacious. So Palestinian intellectuals like Habibi drew on their earlier experiences from the publishing and writing world and reactivated the role of newspapers and journals. This was especially important because access to regional publications like At-Tariq were now cut off. You couldn't just get journals from Cairo or Beirut anymore. So um, they reprised the role of local newspapers and journals, but this time, rather than speaking, rather than deploying an anti-colonial discourse against the British, 
they were deploying anti-colonial discourses against Israel. And they were also arguing against the Orientalist discourses that were underpinning a lot of Israeli policies as they had been underpinning British policies that talked about the Arabs being backwards and, and so forth. So that's um, so that sort of highlights the initial impetus for why newspapers became so important. And this brings me to the second part of my argument, which is that the production and circulation of texts among Palestinians within the Green Line, as well as across the Green Line, really played a central role in helping Palestinian intellectuals overcome these forms of oppression and isolation that they faced. So essentially what I did for this book is examine the social lives of texts, how texts were produced, how they were circulated, who copied what where, where did they access them from, what could they read, what couldn't they read, etc. So to do so, I paid attention to what the late, great Edward Said called the worldliness of texts. Said has this great essay, it's a classic from the early 80s, where he talks about the worldliness of texts. And I really think that that is still applicable, particularly in this case. So Said called for us to remember that texts, quote, are always enmeshed in circumstance, time, place, and society, unquote. And therefore, they have to be understood in the context in which they're produced. So it's the anti-post-structuralist narrative, you could say. So since they couldn't travel to neighboring states and even travel within the country was difficult, the, the circulation and distribution of Al-Ittihad, as well as its sister journal, the Arabic monthly literary um, journal Al-Jadid, both of which were official publications of the Israeli Communist Party, played a key role in exposing Palestinian readers in Israel to regional concepts and ideas. So the local press played a really important role in connecting Palestinians inside the Green Line with contemporary developments in the Arab world. And I should note that the, the communist publications were uniquely positioned to be able to do this because they weren't under the same kinds of um, restrictions that other independent Arabic publications would have been under, both because the Israeli Communist Party was, was a joint uh, membership, you had Arabs and Jews in it, um, the Israeli Communist Party was able to connect to other communist parties in the region and in Europe, and the restrictions against them weren't as strict because Israel didn't want to lose its um, standing with the Soviet Union. So, um, so th this is, for all of these reasons, the communist press became the primary venue, particularly in the mid to sort of early to mid 1950s till about 1958. Um, so in the first decade, it was the prime venue for distribution. And even afterwards, when it was being challenged by some of the more local nationalist presses, the Communist Party had the institutional support to really have the staying power that others were, didn't have. So despite all of these uh, sort of ameliorating uh, circumstances that I just described, members of the Communist Party still faced a lot of obstacles. For one, they could import global communist publications, but accessing specifically regional Arabic cultural works was much harder to do. Now, it wasn't that these Arabic cultural works were inherently illegal in Israel. The Hebrew University Library, which had a very robust and famous Department of Oriental Studies, imported journals and newspapers from throughout the region, often one of the first, you know, they had current issues of Al-Adab, um, Al-Adib, Al-Hilal, a lot of the major publications. 
So it wasn't that they were banned in Israel, but rather it was that having Palestinian intellectuals be in possession of these Arabic regional publications, that was seen as dangerous. And so in response, those intellectuals got creative about how they accessed texts. Some of them went to the Hebrew University Library. Um, there were students there. There were several in the law college. And rather than doing their law homework, they'd go to the Library of Oriental Studies, pull out the books, pull out the journals, and just uh, read. A lot of them talked to me in, in um, interviews about how they would access the um, uh, poetry collections that were newly published, particularly in Iraq and in Lebanon, and copy out poets, poetry poems by hand, and then share them among their friends and colleagues. Some of them would have friends mail them publications in the mail from Europe. If they had colleagues or friends in Europe, they would just send them stuff through the mail. But all of this was intermittent and uncertain. And so as one intellectual told me in an interview, he would wait for a copy of Al-Adab to come his way, quote, like a lover waits for a beloved, unquote. So one reason for this uncertainty was that Palestinians who obtained such material without the authority's permission could get in trouble. Poet Rashid Hussein learned this lesson the hard way one evening in 1960 when an armed police officer arrived at his door and had a search warrant and one question. And the question was, did Hussein have any printed material from Arab countries? Hussein was convinced he had done nothing wrong. Hussein, by the way, was not a member of the um, Israel Communist Party. He was actually involved with the Mapam Party, which was a leftist Zionist organization that also was seeking around this time period to cultivate more relations with the Arab world to be a, a sort of alternative and a challenge to the Communist Party. So Hussein had a lot of Zionist connections. He had Jewish friends, and he had also connections with the Arab world. So he was convinced he had done nothing wrong. So he lets in the cops. And he pulls out six issues of the Egyptian newspaper Al-Ahram and two issues of the Lebanese magazine Al-Sayyad and a smattering of Arabic books. The disclosure triggered a call for backup. And soon, nine police officers were pouring over hundreds of pieces of printed Arabic material in his small apartment. A criminal investigator asked Hussein how he had obtained recent issues of Arabic newspapers and recently published books. Hussein replied that he had procured them through a local, a new local initiative called the Arab Book Company, which itself had received the material legally through the mail from Europe. Meanwhile, a group of police officers separated out the locally printed Arabic material from the imported Arabic material and hauled off all of the Arabic material. Hussein lamented that their only crime was to be published in Egypt. Hussein himself was hauled off by police where he spent his first night in jail and he was released the next day without charge. So this episode highlights the lengths that Israeli authorities went to to prevent Palestinian intellectuals in Israel from accessing cultural material from the Arab world. And in doing so, it made the acquisition of those texts themselves acts of resistance. And it also highlights the interrelatedness of political, cultural, and textual strategies for resistance. And these are things that we tend to talk about separately. We tend to talk about political resistance over here, cultural resistance over here. But one of the arguments that I make throughout the book is that we really need to see them as integrated. So Rashid Hussain's experience also highlights the transnational dimension of this story. So I mentioned earlier that the communist press devoted a great deal of attention to decolonizing movements throughout the world. So what we have here are 
Arab events, uh, major Arab events of decolonization, like Nasser uh, nationalizing the Suez Canal, the Iraqi Revolution of 1958, which overthrew the pro-British Hashemite monarchy, and down below the Algerian um, independence celebrations, celebrating their independence from the, um, from the French, right? And these were by far the ones that sort of took up the most space and the most coverage in these publications. But they didn't limit themselves to the Arab world. So Congo, for example, um, play, had major coverage in Al-Ittihad, Priscilla Mumba's assassination, likewise received major coverage in Al-Ittihad. And it was because they situated themselves as part of a larger Arab-Afro-Asian liberation movement. Um, and while there isn't as much mention of, say, Cuba or Latin America, there's also an awareness of what's happening there as well. And so one of the things that I talk about also, one of the arguments I make then as well, is that the strategies of resistance that they are focused on at a very local level, like going to the Hebrew library, uh, Hebrew University Library and copying poems, is also happening, also has connections to a national, also has connections to a regional, and also has connections to transnational and international developments and, um, and um, uh, events that are happening at the same time. Now, I want to be very clear here and issue uh, a bit of a caveat to say that when I talk about decolonization in this context, I want to make it clear that the writers that I'm talking about, whether the communists, the nationalists, or others, rarely, if ever, refer to Israel explicitly as a settler colonial state. Those who did, and there were some, um, particularly with the pan-Arab uh, sort of Qaumi nationalist art movement, they faced swift sanction from the state. They, they got shut down real fast. Um, so those from the communists, those like Rashid Hussein from Mapam, would allude to parallels with, say, the French in Algeria, but would not explicitly call Israel a settler colonial state. There are communist ideological reasons behind that, as well as uh, sort of pragmatic reasons behind that. But I would also argue that what they were also seeking to do was push our understanding of decolonization beyond the straitjacket of national liberation. Uh, and really argue that decolonization was more than just formal independence from colonial rule. And examining this broader concept of decolonization also builds on a recent body of scholarship that has been making similar arguments, particularly the work of historical anthropologist Gary Wilder, whose study of Negritude co-founders Leopold Senger and Amy Césaire reveals that the cosmopolitanism and universalism found in their writings requires us to expand our understanding of decolonization. We must also account for the various forms of supranational imaginaries, particularly third worldism, in which politically engaged peoples living under a range of colonial and semi-colonial and neo-colonial rules nonetheless found points of convergence together. And this more expansive view of decolonization also helps us understand the early writings of such well-known figures as Mahmoud Darwish, who again, we think about it in terms of nationalist poetry. But Darwish actually has a much larger and richer body of work than that. Um, I was surprised to discover in the course of my research that he was also in his 20s a profound uh, essayist. He had a regular column in Al-Itihad newspaper where he talked about the political and cultural milieu in which he was sort of struggling against 
including things like Israeli attempts to co-opt cultural producers, but also looking at how culture is used in anti-colonial movements in Algeria, in Iraq, and throughout the world. So from 1961 to 1963, he wrote over 45 essays in Al Ittihad, discussing various matters related to literature and politics. He was between the ages of 20 and 23 when these essays ran. He was a young guy. But what's striking to me is that 50 years later, his essays still ring true. And they, in many ways, predicted subsequent cultural developments that would happen. Now, unlike Emil Habibi, who grew up in his formative years in, with access to these regional publications, Darwish didn't. He grew up in, under Israeli rule. He was seven years old, six years old, when the state of Israel was established. And so he grew up under an Israeli school system and under military rule. So he didn't have access to contemporary regional publications the way that someone like Habibi did. And so he, in particular, was very attuned to the ways in which Israel isolated Palestinians from their own cultural heritage. Darwish repeatedly, in his columns, repeatedly framed his community's inaccessibility to its past as part of a larger colonial endeavor. For example, in a column praising the reprinting of a popular 8th century literary classic, Kalilo Dimna, Darwish noted, I know he was very excited about it, uh, Darwish noted though, that the publication of Kalilo Dimna by a local Arabic printing house was an important step in combating colonialism. In the same essay, he writes, quote, The genius of colonialism is that the first thing it seeks to do is erase the heritage of the people whose resources it covets, unquote. And therefore, acquiring access to their own heritage combats this. And he was citing um, Africa, actually, European colonizers in Africa as a sort of prime example of this. But the fact that he was putting it together with the local publication of Kalilo Dimna highlights what I'm talking about in terms of alluding to Israel as a settler colonial state and as operating in ways that are very similar to the ways in which European colonialism works, while refraining from explicitly saying, yo, Israel is a settler colonial state, right? Okay. So, um, so despite these deep engagements, the deep engagements of these intellectuals in these broader regional and global developments, until 1967, no one really heard about them, in the, certainly not in the Arab world. Uh, most Arab intellectuals deemed them at best to be passive victims of Israeli tyranny and at worst traitors. And they were not shy to use the word khawana, which is the Arabic word for traitor, super pejorative, but also commonly used. So that that's sort of the, what's happening up until 67, but from 68 onwards, a lot of these same Arab intellectuals regarded the Palestinian intellectuals in Israel, specifically poets like Darwish and Samih al-Qasim and Tawfiq Sayyad and others, they started to celebrate them as resistance poets, as um, sort of the, the um, avant-garde of cultural resistance. And so it's here that I'm going to turn to the, my th the third part of my argument, which tries to help explain, well, how did this happen? And what I would argue is that it was actually Palestinian intellectuals in exile who played a key role in this transmission and transformation of Palestinians in Israel. So despite the widespread ignorance about how these Palestinians in the Arab world, as far back as the 1950s, we have evidence of at least a few Palestinian intellectuals in exile 
who sought to raise Arab and global consciousness about Palestinian citizens of Israel. Uh, we have in 1955 Fayez Sayyid, who was wrote one of the first such reports in which he laid out the various forms of persecution and discrimination visited upon the Palestinian minority, including discriminatory laws, land confiscation, the destruction of towns and villages, the destruction of Muslim and Christian holy sites, etc. But it was very much framed as these are sort of poor, passive Palestinians who are victims of Israeli tyranny. In 1961, Palestinian historian Ahmed Sidqi Dajani delivered a lecture on the condition of the Palestinians in what he called Occupied Palestine. And he gave this talk at the Cultural Center in Tripoli, Libya. He argued that far from being passive victim, in fact, Palestinians in Israel were playing an important role in perpetuating and, and displaying a strong national consciousness. He concluded in his speech, quote, there is no doubt that these brothers play a significant role in our struggle against the usurping enemy. And we send them our greetings, unquote. So Dajani's appeal to see Palestinians inside the Green Line as part of a larger Palestinian collective struggle, while introduced as early as 1961, didn't really catch on um, until later. Uh, the next sort of moment in which we see this happening is actually 1966 with Hassan Kanafani, who, um, and it's part of a larger trend, I'll talk about Kanafani in a minute, but it's part of a larger trend where we see the institutionalization of the production of Palestinian knowledge with the establishment of the Institute for Palestine Studies in 63 and the Palestine Research Center that was founded by Sayyid in 65. And so they start seeking out and commissioning and, and setting up resources to publish studies about Palestinians. And so here we turn to Kenneth Fanny, who in 1966 wrote a very important book called Resistance Literature in Occupied Palestine. And in the introduction, Kenneth Fanny explained that, quote, despite the cultural embargo, uh, unquote, that Palestinians in Israel faced, he nonetheless managed to gain access to some of their publications through Al-Ittihad Al-Jadid. So Kenafani is based in Beirut at the time, and so we think that the publications were snuck across the Israel-Lebanese border, but nobody was willing to confirm that to me. <laughs> I asked some folks in interviews, like, yo, how'd Kenafani get this? Like, mm, we don't know. Uh, wink, wink, nod, nod. Uh, there's some mention of some cousins who had some access, but like nobody wanted to give me a firm answer about how this happened. And Kanafani didn't um, acknowledge his, the, the, how he came by these texts either. And it speaks to the fact, just as a side note, I was conducting interviews with writers in 2007. Um, and so in, still in 2007, people didn't want to tell me about the ways in which borders were traversed in the 1960s. And so it speaks to some of the ongoing um, challenges of isolation that they still face. All right. Going back to Kanafani, in his first book, Adab al-Muqawama Palestine al-Muhtalla, 1948-66, he talks about, he praises the Darwish, as well as uh, Darwish's fellow poets, Samih al-Qasim and Tawfiq Zayad, for achieving great artistic merit despite their isolation. 
In particular, Kenafeni praised them for responding this transformation that happened whereby Arab intellectuals first ignored them and then sort of turned to them as saviors. They sort of looked to them as like, oh my gosh, in the wake of this massive humiliating defeat of the 67 war, here are these Palestinian intellectuals who don't seem to have been that uh, devastated by the outcome of the 67 war. They weren't surprised by the outcome of the 67 war. And here they are having lived two decades under Israeli hegemony, having lived two decades under Israeli hegemony, yet they still have maintained their voice, their identity, and so forth. So they came to be seen as kind of a role model, you could say, for the, um, particularly for the defeated Arab world, as well as for the newly occupied Palestinians in the West Bank, Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem. So, um, and so Palestinians in the newly occupied territories in particular were influenced by the, these resistance poets. For example, prior to 67, Nablus-based poet Fadwa Tuqan had mainly composed poetry that was based on her own personal life, and she wasn't really engaged with broader political issues. Tuqan, in her memoirs, credits her close friendship with Darwish and Qasim and Zayed for inspiring her to use her poetic talent to resist Israeli hegemony. She recalls in her memoir that she had meetings with them in those first few weeks and months after the occupation that really lifted her spirits. She writes, quote, for me, meaning for Darwish and Qasim, uh, for me, they, meaning these poets, they were specks of light in the pitch black darkness of the occupation. Sitting among these poets and writers, I found myself. At the same time, a peculiar transformation found its way into my soul and my thoughts, as if I was touched by a miracle. As I returned home from an evening gathering, feelings of relief would flutter in me as if it were the fluttering of flowers." Unquote. But soon, such encounters faced obstacles. Israeli authorities banned several Palestinian writers in Israel from traveling to the West Bank, including Darwish and Qasim and Zayad. They also banned the distribution of Al-Ittihad and Al-Jadid in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. 
And moreover, the more that Tuqan found herself invited to participate in literary and cultural events inside the Green Line, the more she found herself slapped with orders that kept her confined to her hometown in Nablus for the day of the event. Mm-hmm. So Israeli, the military authorities, who are now ruling over the West Bank, would show up the day before, the day of an event that she was scheduled to participate in, said, you're not to leave your town today. And here are the orders, and if you are caught at a checkpoint or elsewhere, you're going to go to jail. And so we have sort of history repeating itself, but now with the history, uh, but now with Palestinians in the occupied territories. And one of the um, sort of avenues that I hope someone will pursue for future research is to look more specifically at the ways in which the military rule over Palestinian citizens of Israel manifested and influenced military rule over the Palestinians in the West Bank. Shira Robinson alludes to it. Lots of people have sort of pointed out parallels like I just did, but like an in-depth study of that um, awaits to be done. So in conclusion, how does this project (coughs) contribute more broadly to Arab studies um, and uh, modern Arab studies in particular? So first, I argue that it shows the need to include more fully the stories of Palestinian citizens of Israel in our own accounts of Arab intellectual history. While there's been lots of attention paid to Palestinians, to these Palestinians in recent years, they still tend to be talked about primarily within the Israeli state rather than within the um, Arab world. Second, I argue that this study shows us the importance of studying the worldliness of texts and how these texts were circulated across boundaries to, and how these two lines of arguments together show the ways in which Palestinians resisted their isolation and resisted the um, imposition of boundaries that were being imposed upon them against their will. So when our lens of analysis is on Palestinians only in one locale, and anthropologists, I must say, are notorious for this, right? Studying them in one locale, we risk reifying the very segregation and isolation that they're fighting against. This framework also invites comparisons to other minoritized and transnational communities in the region, including the Kurds, the Armenians, the uh, Assyrians, and more recently, Iraqi and Syrian refugees across borders. Finally, and perhaps unconventionally, I want to mention a limitation of this project. You may have noticed that with the exception of Tuqan in this last screen, all the figures I mentioned were men. Uh, The title of the book, Brothers Apart, is also quite masculine in orientation. Uh, So you may be wondering, where are the women? It's a really good question. It's one I asked myself many times. And I looked uh, far and wide to find women's voices in the publications and writings and texts that I was examining. They're very hard to come by. There are very, very few women. It's not that women weren't writing material, and it's not that women weren't active in these spheres. It's that their writings did not get preserved or published, um, published or preserved for posterity's sake in the same way that men's activities were. And so I'm hoping that also future scholars will take advantage of the methodologies pioneered in gender and women's studies, in anthropology, collecting um, ephemeral and non-published sort of sources to reclaim and recover the role that women activists played in this period, as well as the role that other subaltern peoples did. 
um, and in doing so continue to build on what I think is really a first step in talking about this community and their relationship to the Arab world. So there's much exciting work to be done and also a lot of work still to do. Um, I hope my talk today is giving you some food for thought and I welcome your questions and comments. You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner, Email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at paola at statushour.com To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com, or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com dot com.